Well, welcome on this brisk day. I, I find it absolutely refreshing. I know some of you probably don't, but I find it refreshing. We are in Romans chapter 9, and uh, we are continuing this study of what I think everybody would agree is a very difficult section, not only of the epistle, the epistle but, but of, of the entire, the entire Bible. Bible. This, this, this whole issue of election and the corresponding doctrine of reprobation. So we're going to continue that today. I know you're thinking, is there any end in sight? Um, and there is, of course, but we're not there yet. So we want to try and understand as best we can what Paul is trying to say to us here in the hopes that we can see this for what it's intended to be, and that is an amazing picture of God's grace and mercy to those who believe. So Romans chapter 9, we'll begin at verse 18. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them up. Paul writes, so then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now you will say to me, then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of defense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want to return to some of the attempts that people have made to try and soften Paul's teaching on this doctrine of election. Uh, we recognize that this is the teaching of Scripture. I said last week that while we would very much like to just pass from Romans chapter 8 right on to Romans chapter 11 or Romans chapter 12 and not even deal with this whole section of Paul's epistle. We can't do that because Paul was an apostle. We believe that he was divinely inspired by God, and the words that he produced were not merely his opinions or thoughts. What Paul ultimately produced was the word of the Lord, and we give at least lip service to that every Sunday when we read from Paul's epistle, 
or this epistle or any of the other epistles, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, whatever it is, we say at the end, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. So if we really believe that Paul was carried along by the Holy Spirit and what he produced was the Word of God, difficult or not, you and I have an obligation to try to the best of our ability by the grace of the Holy Spirit to understand what the Apostle is saying. Now, some people have recognized, okay, Paul is teaching about election here, but certainly there must be a better way to understand it than what I have been teaching you. And of course, what I'm trying to teach you is what Paul taught you, but, but people try to get around that. You know, when somebody says something, you want to you put the, the most positive spin on it, if at all possible. And that's what many people try to do when it comes to Romans. Now, what I'm going to show you is that I think that that is a fool's errand. I think what Paul is saying here is pretty easy for us to understand in terms of what he's saying. It may be difficult for us to comprehend how that works out. But I don't think it's very difficult to understand what Paul is saying here. When he talks about the potter having the right over the clay, that's not hard to understand. It may be hard to accept, but it doesn't mean it's hard to understand. But people have nevertheless tried to get around this doctrine of election. For example, some have argued that what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 9 is not something that pertains to individuals. This is something that pertains to nations. I mean, Paul is talking about the election of Abraham, for example. He invokes the names of Isaac and Jacob, and surely what's being implied here is that Paul is talking about the nations that sprung from those people. They were the fountainheads, if you were, of entire peoples, and that's what Paul is talking about. He's, about calling about the, he's talking about the calling of Israel. He's not talking about the calling of any specific individual. Now you say, well, Abraham was an individual. Oh, yes, but they would say, but Abraham, you have to start somewhere if you're going to call a nation. And so he started with Abraham. But after that, it was the calling of nations. And that's what's represented by Jacob and Esau and, and Abraham and so forth. This is not a question of individuals. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem of that, of course, is that Pharaoh is mentioned in this list as well. And the Egyptians really are, don't have a part to play, at least a major role. They're, they're not in any way God's chosen people. You can make that argument about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, absolutely. You can even parlay Esau into all of that. But it's very difficult to do that when it comes to Pharaoh. And it seems as though God has raised up Pharaoh for a very specific purpose. That he might display his wrath in Pharaoh. So the argument that this is just a reference to the election of nations is not true because Pharaoh is mentioned and Pharaoh is an individual. He's not the fountainhead of the Egyptian people. He's just one man in a long list. Others have argued that, well, what Paul is really talking about here is election of individuals, not the election of nations, not the election of patriarchs, but it is an election that is based upon foreknowledge. I mean, we say it every Sunday, don't we? He is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. Furthermore, we also know that God is omniscient. That's one of his qualities. That's one of his characteristics. He knows all things. He sees the end from the beginning. And the argument here is that, yes, God elects people and saves them, 
but it's on the basis of his foreknowledge. In other words, God looks down the great corridors of time, and because he knows all things, he knows the end from the beginning, because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, he can see beforehand the decisions that people would make. And on the basis of that knowledge of the decisions they would freely make, he therefore elects them to salvation and some to reprobation. Now, that seems to be a very satisfactory explanation to many people. And that, that says, well, that preserves the idea of free will. I like that. What's the problem with that? Well, there are a number of problems with it. One problem is that it undercuts the whole doctrine of grace. What is grace? God's, that's right, unmerited favor. God's unearned, unmerited favor. Well, if God elects us on the basis of what we decide, on the basis of what we do, Where's the unmerited favor in that? See, actually what God is doing is he is saving us. Why? Because we did something. A person who is saved because of something that they chose or something they did can never say to God alone, be the glory. Now, they may be able to say to God, be glory, but they can never say to God, alone be the glory. Because, you see, they did something. They contributed something to the process. Now, it may have been a very small part by comparison to what God does, but nevertheless, there is a human contribution. And any time there is a human contribution, what we inevitably do is we rob God of just a little bit of his glory. And it is not all of grace. Furthermore, it assumes that we're all in the same position. For example, Paul in Ephesians says that we're all dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We've talked at great length about that. The only way that dead people can respond to the message of the gospel is if God, who is rich in mercy, does what? Makes them alive even when they were dead. Now, somebody might argue, well, what God does is he makes us all alive... <laughs> so to speak, and then we're all in the same position where we can either choose to follow him or not choose to follow him. But we all know from our own experiences that not everybody is in the same position. We all know that certain people have advantages that other people do not have. I mean, you know that. Putting salvation aside for a moment, theological issues, we know that there are certain people that have certain educational advantages that other people do not have. Isn't that true? Certain people have been raised in a home, they have certain economic advantages that other people do not have. We recognize that not everybody starts off in the same place and on an equal playing field. So even if it is true that God raises everybody from the dead, so to speak and then gives everybody the opportunity to choose or not to choose, we recognize that some people start off at a disadvantage. So we cannot say that everybody starts in the same place or in the same position. And then there's the whole issue of foreknowledge itself. 
I mean, Paul does talk about foreknowledge, doesn't he? Go back to Romans chapter 8, the chapter that immediately precedes this. This is, this is what people argue. This is why they say God looks down the corridors of time and on the basis of what he sees in a person's life, he elects them or he rejects them. They say, well, that's exactly what Paul says, isn't it? Romans chapter 20, Romans chapter 8, verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. When we looked at this section some months ago, I said that these are the five golden links of salvation. How do we know that God is going to work all things together for good? Because God is sovereign and in control from the beginning. Because those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he will what? Glorify. Glorify. It's because it's the work of God from stem to stern, from start to finish, that we know that all things will work together for good. Well, somebody might argue, well, right there it is. It's foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. But what does that word foreknowledge mean in the New Testament? It does not merely mean to see the decisions that they will make beforehand. The word actually means he took note of them. That is, he knew them beforehand. He took note of them. Like he took note of Abraham. He took note of Abraham when Abraham was what? Living in ignorance and Ur of the Chaldeans, an idol worshiper. And then God did what? Predestined him. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he then called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, ultimately, he glorified. So the word foreknowledge does not simply mean to know what they're going to do beforehand. It really means that God, before the foundations of the earth, for reasons that are secret to him, took note of them, took note of them. So attempts to soften what Paul is saying here, they really, if you study the text closely, just don't work. Now, we're still troubled by this doctrine, and I understand that. So I just want to highlight some important points that we need to remember as we continue to work through this section of the epistle. First thing is this. The doctrine of reprobation, that is the doctrine of election, God elects some, he saves some, reprobation, that concerns those who are not elect. It's important that we understand that reprobation does not mean, and this is very important, does not mean that God creates people for the sheer purpose of destroying them. That he elects some in order to save them, and he elects others for the sheer purpose of damning them. That's not what the doctrine of reprobation means. And it's important that we understand that. Why? Because if that's what you're teaching when you talk about reprobation, you're actually making God the author of sin. You're saying that, that God created people 
with a sinful nature. He created them for the sheer purpose of putting them to death. And the Bible is clear. We cannot make God the author of sin. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God does not create people for the sheer purpose of punishing them. Now, somebody might say, ah, but what about Pharaoh? We've already mentioned Pharaoh. Isn't that what Paul says about Pharaoh? I raised you up for this very purpose. Go back to Romans chapter 9, to this section that we were just reading. Beginning at verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now somebody might say, well, that says that God raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose of destroying him. Is that really what the text says? You know, I think it's important when we study the scriptures and we come to something that seems, initially at least to us, difficult, that we first of all read the text closely and second of all, we read the whole text. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Keep your finger there in Romans for a moment and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, one of the things that Paul was accused of during the course of his ministry and his missionary journeys was that Paul was arguing that people could live any way they wanted because they were saved by grace. This is what is known as antinomianism. Uh, there is no place for the law. There is no place for good works in the Christian life. That anytime you begin to say you need to do this or you need to do that, anytime you invoke that kind of a law, what you are doing is you are undercutting the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Now, here's a question for you. This is not meant to be a trick question. I think you know the answer to this. How are we saved? Are we saved by any works that we do? Even the smallest work. How are we saved? Solely by the grace of God, which is what? Undeserved, unearned favor, which we receive through the conduit of faith. Now, you understand that. that. That's great. You know, our, October the 31st was just the other day. We, we call that Halloween. You know what that really was? That was Reformation Day. It was on that day in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, the castle church. And one of his complaints against the Catholic Church of the medieval period was that they were arguing for a salvation by works. And he said, that's not the teaching of the Scripture. We are saved by grace through faith. Sola gratia, sola fide. Grace alone received by faith alone. Well, that is certainly what Paul teaches here. And people say, well, if that's true, if we're saved entirely by the grace of God, aside from any works that we perform, then so long as we believe, we can live like hell. 
I mean, that's basically the argument because no works are involved. There is not one bit of work that you and I contribute to the process of our salvation. And so there were many people in Paul's day who were living like that. Well, I'm saved by grace, and therefore once I believe, it doesn't matter how I live my life. Well, is there no place for works in the Christian life? What is the place of good works in the Christian life if they do not save us? One of the passages that people often quote is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This, this is that critical verse. Luther loved this verse. He probably didn't have a highlighter in his day, but if he did, he would have highlighted this verse. And this is what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, Paul could hardly be clearer than that. He says it over and over again. It is by grace that you have been saved. This is through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so you cannot boast. I mean, how much clearer can you get than that? There's no place for works in the Christian life. That's what people say. But read the next verse. That's the verse that everybody ignores. That's the verse that everybody cuts out. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is very clear. No, we're not saved by our works. His argument here is that while we've been saved from something, we have been saved for something. The good works don't save us, but what Paul is saying here, and this is very important, by the way, the good works that we do are the evidence of our salvation. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you will know them by their fruits. Now, when I say the good works are the evidence of salvation, I'm not talking about the good works that society or the world finds pleasing and acceptable. In other words, many people think, well, I'm an upstanding member of the community, therefore my good works are the evidence of my salvation. That is not what the Bible teaches. When we talk about good works, we're talking about those works that Christ himself did. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit when Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. What are the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And if you look at it, you begin to realize that there's only one person in all of history who has ever possessed those things in abundance. And who is that? Jesus. I think, I think it's very interesting that it's described as the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. It's not a case, you see, where you get, well, some people get love. Ah, some of you get joy. Some of you get peace. Some of you get patience, not I. But some of you get this or you get that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's like a clump of grapes. If the Spirit is at work in your life, you get all of that. That's because it's Christ's likeness. Now, if you stop at verse 9, you misunderstand the text completely, don't you? You have to go on and read verse 10. Let me give you another example of this. Go to John chapter 1 for just a moment. 
Because this is a text that has actually been quoted in opposition to the doctrine of election. So it's worth taking a look at it. John chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now somebody says, no, right there. There's, there's no talk of election we choose to believe, and if we choose to believe, what? We become children of God. It's right there. Read the next verse. Everybody stops, you see, but you read the next verse. Who were born, what? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, not by the decision of any individual, including yourself, but of God. So I encourage you always, if you read a text and it seems to be difficult to understand, go back and read it carefully and read the whole thing. Let's go back now to Pharaoh for just a moment. It sounds as though God has raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, and indeed he says that. But I want you to notice the word choice. God said, I raised you up for this very point. It does not say, I created you for this very point thing. In other words, God raised Pharaoh to this position, this status in society that he might be used. But it does not necessarily mean that God created Pharaoh for the sheer purpose of destroying him. Now, this is what theologians sometimes refer to as middle Knowledge, Not foreknowledge, but middle knowledge. What is middle knowledge? Well, it's what we often think foreknowledge is. Middle knowledge is God's ability, because he's omniscient, to look down the corridors of history, the corridors of time, and understand the decisions that people will make. And he then uses the decisions that those individuals make freely in his great sovereign plan of redemption in history. So, for example, Judas. Judas didn't have any responsibility in the death of Jesus. He, he simply did what he was programmed to do, if you will. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. Jesus said it would have been better if Judas had never been born. No, what we're told is that God knew the decisions that Judas would make. He knew the kind of character that Judas was. And keeping that in mind, he used Judas. That's not to say that he forced Judas to do anything, but he certainly, certainly used Judas in that plan. It's like a man being shot on the street. You know, we're told that God knows Everything. He knows the hour of our death. He numbers the hairs on our heads. Well, if a man goes around the corner and shoots another man, is it God's will that that man should die? Well, yes, it is. I mean, he appoints the hour of our death, we're told. But is it God's will that that man should shoot him? 
And the answer to that is no. So you see, God in his sovereignty can use the decisions that wicked and sinful people make freely. He can use those in his sovereign plan, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is causing those things to happen. We make our decisions, our choices freely. Here's a final point to remember about reprobation. Reprobation does not mean, as I said, that God willy-nilly chooses some for election and some for damnation. You I like, you I don't like. I love you, I love you not. It's not like that. Reprobation simply means that God passes by. In other words, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God is under no obligation to what? Save anybody. As I said, according to what Paul is saying here, nobody gets injustice in the eyes of God. We get exactly what we deserve. But God, who is rich in mercy, chooses to save some. He's under no obligation to save any. If he saves only one, there is mercy. The fact that he saves many, there is great mercy. So we need to keep all of those points in mind, especially as we turn now to looking at this from God's perspective. Now, I know that's difficult for us to do because as human beings, how else can we look at it? But as human beings down here on this level. But Paul in these verses basically gives us three contrasts. And these three contrasts can help us to look at the situation from God's perspective. So again, we're continuing to drill down deep into this great doctrine. Paul makes three contrasts here in the verses that we're reading. In verse 21, he makes a contrast between man and God. Then he makes a contrast between something that has been formed and the one who has formed it. And then he makes the contrast between a potter and the clay. Now, all three of these images, all three of these contrasts are meant to relate the same message, but each of them adds something unique. So, look again at verse 21. Has the potter, no, excuse me, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this. The first contrast is God and man. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Paul says, if, if you want to understand as much as we're capable of understanding this doctrine of election, you have to see yourself for who you really are, and you have to see God for who he really is. Who are we as human beings in relationship to God? Well, keep your finger there in Romans. We're going to skip around a little bit, but go back to the book of Psalms. That's the center of the Bible. You've heard me say before, if you, if you don't know how to find Psalms, it's, it's an easy book to find. You close your Bible and open up to the very center. Just open it up to the very center, and you're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left, and you're going to hit Psalms. Psalm 8 is a marvelous psalm of a person who sees themselves for what they really are, and seeing themselves, they begin to see God for who he really is. And this is what the psalmist says. It's a wonderful hymn of praise. 
O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I think, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here is the picture of a man who looks at the vast cosmos of everything that has been made, the complexity of the of the, the stars and their courses and, and human life and animal life and plant life and all of these things. And by comparison, he says to himself, what are we that you are even mindful of us? You ever stop to think about that? I mean, those of you who are doctors, you certainly recognize the complexity of the human body and the way the human body operates and works, our immune system, how it fights disease and illness, infection, and so forth. That's an extraordinary thing. Scientists and cosmologists and astronomers who look at the planets and the galaxies and we are continually discovering new things in outer space, things that we cannot even begin to understand, like singularities, black holes. We think about the DNA code in the human body. It's a language. Francis Collins wrote a book entitled The Language of God. It was the head of the NIH, mapped the human genome. God has done all of that. And more. It's continuous discovery. And the psalmist says, when I stop and I ponder that, when I stop and consider that, I think to myself, what are we human beings? That God is even mindful of us. What's Paul saying? Here we are, human beings, questioning God. Saying, God, why have you done this? How dare you do it this way? Paul says that is the height of presumption. What right do any of us, any of us at all, have to question God? Now, if you're there in Psalms, go to the left and you'll hit Job. Because Job is... A great example of exactly what I'm talking about. You all know the story of Job. Uh, Job had all of these disasters befall him. It's a complicated story. This is an old, old piece of literature. Many regard it as the oldest piece of literature in the Bible. But Job has had all of these disasters befall him. And so Job begins to question God. You ever done that in your life? Lord, why have you done this to me? You know, the minute we ask that, it's not really an inquiry, is it? It's an accusation. 
What we're really saying when we say, God, why have you done this to me? What you're really saying is, God, you had no right to do this to me. I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. Why are you doing this to me? There is injustice here. Isn't that true? That's exactly what Job says. Look, I look at my life and, and I, I don't see anything that I've done wrong. And yet this is happening to me. Why are you inflicting me in this way? And here comes God's answer. And it goes on for several chapters. I love the way it begins. God sits there and takes it for a while. But then he says, all right, if you just let me get a word in edgewise, I'll give you an answer. And here it comes. Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? That is critical. You are questioning me and you don't even know. You have no knowledge. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. The old translation was better. Gird up your loins like a man. And I will question you. How dare you question me? You want, to be, you want questions? I'll give you questions and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And for several chapters, it goes on like that. Look at chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. I, you're a fault finder. You find fault with me, Job. But I'm the one that made you. I'm the one that made all things. And you're going to find fault with me? Now, by this point, Job's had enough. And, and so he says in verse 3, Behold, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. Enough, enough, uncle. And God says, No. Very next verse, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And he goes on and on and on and on to question Job until finally Job gets to the end and he says, I repent. In sackcloth and ashes, who am I, a mere creature, to question the Almighty? See, that's how we have to begin to see ourselves. We are creatures. Certainly, as the psalmist says, we are exalted creatures. We have been made in the image of God. We have been made just a little lower than the angels. But folks, we are still creatures. And he is the almighty. 
Everything we have, even our rational abilities, our ability to think, to comprehend, to sort things out, these are gifts from God. And with our rational abilities that have been given to us to God, we're going to question the one who gave us these rational abilities? Prophet Isaiah put it well. Speaking for God, he said, the Lord says, my ways are not your ways, for my ways are higher than your ways as the mountains are higher than the seas. Be honest, when you think about all that God has made, do we really have a right to question him? Dare we as mere creatures challenge the all mighty. Man and God, that's the first contrast. Second contrast is this, what is formed, say, to he who formed it. That's what we were talking about. God has made us a little lower than the angels. He's given us rational ability. And yet we think that with the rational abilities that have been given to us, we have a right to question the one who is the author of all of that. God's ways are not our ways. And we need to recognize that his ways are higher than our ways. Think about it with a child. When a child is going and sticking his hand in the electrical socket. Yeah, we had, our eldest was like that. He was very determined. I do not know why. He was fascinated with the electrical sockets. And he would always want to stick his fingers in the electrical sockets. Now, we got those little plastic plugs. Somebody said, you need to get those plastic plugs. Well, I got them. And he would pry them out. Now, of course, we would move him all the time, move him all the time, move him all the time. He just kept going back to it. And finally, we had to do the unthinkable today. We better shut the film off at this point. We smacked his hands. And he cried. And these, these great alligator tears came out, and he looked at us. And, and the look was just sheer confusion. Why did you do that to me? I wasn't bothering anybody. But the reality is what? Mother and father knew better than he did. He could not comprehend with his little mind why that was unacceptable. But father knew best, and what I want to suggest to you is that he really does. We are like those little children. There are many things that we do not understand, that we do not comprehend. The problem for us as human beings is that we just think too highly of ourselves. We think we are so extraordinary so worthy of love, why wouldn't God love us? Well, he does love us. But what we have to get through our minds is that he doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in spite of the fact that we're not. Here's the third contrast that Paul uses. It's the contrast between man and God, what is formed and he who formed it. It's the potter and the clay. Now, this is the rich, the richest of all these images because it's, it's very rich throughout the Bible, this image of a potter and the clay. And you find it in several places in Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah 45, and Isaiah 64. Um, but for the sake of time, we're not going to concentrate on those three passages. We're just going to take a look today at Jeremiah chapter 18 because Jeremiah chapter 18 really is the most famous of all of these images. 
So turn, if you will, to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. And no doubt, Paul doesn't quote a particular passage, but he's drawing from all of these. Jeremiah chapter 18. Then the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil ways and amend your ways and your deeds. What Jeremiah was being taught is that God has a right to do with the nation as God sees fit. Now you might say, well, this is just nations again. But nations are comprised of what? Individuals. And what God is saying is if God wants to plant Israel, that's God's right to plant Israel. If God wants to root up Israel, that's what? That's God's right to root up Israel. Why? Because God is the potter. And when that potter made that clay pot and it said it was spoiled in his hand, that is to say it really wasn't what he intended. He had the right to do what? To redo it and start all over again. Why? Because he's the potter. And for us to respond to God and say, why have you done this or why have you done that? For us to accuse God is like the clay saying to the potter, you have no right to do that. It is to humble us. To help us to recognize that we really don't have a right to question God. Now, God is certainly patient, and there are times when we struggle, and I know we do question God. But we have to be careful when we question God. Are we really trying to understand His purposes, or are we accusing Him of doing something that we regard as unfair or unjust? When you're going through a tough time, and you've heard me say this before, every single one of us will. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. He didn't say, in this life you may have tribulation. It's likely you'll have tribulation. He was clear, you're going to have tribulation. Every single one of us is going to die one day or another, so that means that at some point our health is going to give out or tragedy is going to strike, maybe when we least expect it. But the reality is we're going to face difficulty in this life. We're going to face illness, disease, aging, all of those things are going to happen to us, and when we're in the midst of them, it is perfectly legitimate when we're going through a difficult time to say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this? 
There's nothing wrong with asking those kinds of questions because we're recognizing that we have finite minds and there are things that we do not understand. When your spouse cheats on you and goes off with another person and your heart is broken, you may be asking God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of this? If it is true that all things work together for the good of those who love you, Lord, I need to understand what are you doing? How are you making me more into the likeness of Christ? How are you working all things together in the midst of that? But you see, those questions come from an attitude of humility. We're acknowledging that God is the giver of all good. And we're simply trying to understand how he is working out those purposes. That is very different from saying, how dare you do this to me? I'm a good person. If it really is true, if you really believe that we're saved by grace, folks, then what that means is that God, and this is perhaps the most important lesson that I can impart to you today, God owes us nothing. The fact that he is gracious and merciful, even to the wicked. The fact that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That is a sign of his mercy. It's a sign of his grace. It's a sign of his love. So let us come before the Lord with humility. Let's pray for the grace to see ourselves as we really are, as Jean Valjean saw himself in Les Miserables, in the light of eternity. As creatures. As creatures who have no right to accuse. Every right to inquire but no right to accuse. Creatures who, when all is said and done, can only say, God knows best. So to God be the glory. Ephesians, 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 Ephesians.